0: this week on the Back Table podcast.
1: This is a procedure that can be very easily uh, implanted into any type of you know, outpatient facility, to an ASC, to a hospital. The footprint is minimal. The amount of additional instruments is marginal. Basically, this is all, if you're practicing in the US, you will be likely using the ReliVent system. It's all disposable trays. So it's very easy to start with any practice. And, and especially if you're already set up to proceed with virtual augmentation.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable MSK podcast, your source for all things musculoskeletal. You can find all previous episodes of our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on backtable.com. This is your host, Jacob Fleming, reporting from Dallas, Texas. And today, joining us from the Great White North in Calgary, we have Olivier Clerk, Dr. Clerk. welcome to the show and thanks for your time. Thank you so much, Jacob. It's my pleasure to be here and very excited to be talking about some interesting treatments of the anterior column today. Absolutely. Likewise, I'm very excited. We've been talking more about anterior column treatments, most recently with your colleague, Dr. Ed Yoon, and a recent episode talking about disc therapies. And so the topic today is related and it's a exciting and emerging topic, which is a vertebrogenic pain and specifically the vertebral nerve. So really looking forward to talking about this with you and hearing about your experience and kind of the international aspects, the, the perspective that you have. And so before we jump into the topic for the day, I, I would like to hear about your background, including where you've lived and trained. Yeah, absolutely. See. So I did most
1: of my, well, a good portion of my training in Canada. So before even starting in medicine, I did uh, engineering uh, uh, for, for pre-med. Then uh, I did medical school in at the uh, University of Sherbrooke. So Sherbrooke is a city about uh, an hour south of uh, Montreal and uh, a little bit north uh, from Vermont. It is a quaternary center in which I did uh, both all my medicine and residency in diagnostic imaging. After that, I pursue a fellowship in uh, neuroradiology at uh, Massachusetts General Hospital. Uh, And this is really where I started to to be further exposed to uh, uh, interventional techniques uh, and spine uh, intervention. Uh, I worked actually with the great uh, Dr. Joshua Hirsch and uh, started to do lots of anterior column treatments uh, and augmentation procedures. So lots of vertebral augmentation uh, during that that fellowship. And then I did a second fellowship uh, dedicated in interventional pain management. So that was at the uh, Spine Fracture Institute in Oklahoma City. Uh, with uh, Douglas Beal, and this is uh, where I I, I further uh, learned about new interventional techniques. I did lots of neuromodulation, so spinal cord stimulator, intraticle, uh, drug delivery uh, device, and among other essential procedures for our field, uh, interspinous spacers. And after all that, uh, just because I really felt in love with uh, the specialty, I decided to pursue the qualification of Fellow of Interventional Pain Practice, so FIPP. So, so right now, um, I'm accredited both in uh, diagnostic uh, radiology and interventional radiology, and in uh, uh, interventional pain management. In my current practice, I'm I'm doing both the diagnostic
0: aspect and the interventional aspect uh, on a daily basis. Very nice. It's definitely a training pathway that it's, it goes a little bit off the beaten path in a few different ways. And I liked that you brought up the FIPP designation, uh, which is something that's kind of interesting. I I think that radiologists who are involved in uh, interventional spine and pain management techniques, uh, a lot of us do that without specific fellowship training in that. So people may come from traditionally VIR or musculoskeletal or neuroradiology and kind of start doing these things. But since you had such extensive uh, fellowship experience, you went for this uh, international designation. And I think that that's something that really showcases to the interventional pain community at at large that as an interventional radiologist or or radiology trained interventionalist in the area, you really are dedicated to the full spectrum of it. Would you agree with that? And what was the experience in in studying for that exam and undergoing that uh, certification? Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely
1: agree with that. I, I think as radiologists and as interventionalists, we're, we're very well trained to diagnose images and proceed with therapies. But really, I, I think the uh, FIPP designation really bring it to the next level and, and provide you know, a really comprehensive approach to the treatment, to patient care, and really integrate also physical examination within especially for for the, the patient's selection aspect. And that's something that I think to have trained in uh, diagnostic radiology, we're less exposed to and it is crucial. Like uh, our, our outcome are directly correlated with our patient selection, right? So you can do very well a procedure, but if it's not for the right issue, the right problem, you will not obtain the uh, expected uh, outcome for the patient. So really, for me, having the FIVP certification really did put everything together that basically from the patients that enters basically my clinic currently, uh, I can clinically assess him, we can recommend basically which uh, diagnostic studies needs to be performed, uh, read that study to a very high level, and then suggest interventions. So that's really become, you know, the true one-stop shop that you take the patient from as soon as he entered the the clinic up to when uh, he comes out of the clinic uh, pain free or or with significant uh, improvement. So I I think this is new for our, our specialty to be able to really follow patients like that. It is the future. It is the way to optimize care, avoid Having a patient that will go to various practitioners, various centers to be able to obtain the complete treatment, you know, I highly suggest uh, to uh, interested individual to proceed with that type of accreditation if they are interested in uh, interventional pain subspecialty.
0: Such an important perspective, I I believe that what you're talking about, it, it alludes to the old adage that we treat patients and not images. And yet, for what we do as interventional radiologists, the imaging is obviously crucial. And so, knowing where that fits in and knowing how to interpret all the studies, I think wraps everything together in a very nice way. And with that being said, it seems to me that you have constructed your practice more or less based around that paradigm. And this is uh, from what I understand, your practice, it's a pretty unique setup. And so, I would like to hear about beam radiology and basically, where did the impetus come from to start? what is essentially kind of a small boutique uh, radiology group? And what have been the the challenges and the rewards from pursuing that? Yeah, no, absolutely. It has been uh, quite a ride so far, but we started from humble beginning and now we have
1: five location, one outpatient surgical center that you know would probably qualify if, if we were located in the US as an ambulatory surgical center. Uh, we have a good portion of the practice that is uh, doing teleradiology. So we're covering 22 imaging center, one level one trauma hospital, and we have the full suite of radiology that we would expect in in any hospital or center. So 3T, MRI, uh, intraoperative CT scan, we have dynamic x-ray, eight uh, pain procedure room, OR, you know, about 15 ultrasound uh, rooms that, you know, are heavily uh, running into MSK studies. So yeah, it has been quite a quite a journey. We we started small, but now we should. Uh, I think last time I checked, we were close to 100 employees. Wow. And I think the uh, the initial interest here was really to build a practice that would allow to proceed with those more advanced interventional techniques. Uh, I was very passionate about uh, what I do. And, you know, I think it was missing to have a more comprehensive approach for for patients that patients can rely on one single center or practitioner or practice to be able to have an answer to their interrogation and concern and the treatment within the same facility as well. Because often uh, you can have, you know, a great diagnostic practice that may, may find the area of pain of the patient, may find a, a fracture, may find a lesion, and then the patient will have to go to a different uh, center for treatment. So So the idea was to build something a structure that would allow to treat virtually everything so currently we have you know the provincial program for interarticle pain pumps we're doing spinal cord stimulator lots of vertebral augmentation including you know vertebroplasty capoplasty the osseous a spine jack we're doing lots of disc augmentation uh, now with some clinical trials that we have uh, nucleolysis uh, lots of simple blocks various type of uh, ablation you know from spine uh, knees hips shoulders Uh, leases of adhesions, uh, even uh, deep facial blocks or ablation that, you know, normally are are done more in in hospital that we do very safely as an outpatient setting. So we started very small, but now uh, we kind of grown quite a bit uh, uh, over the last few years
0: and uh, now we're really starting to have uh, you know i think a very comprehensive pain practice well that's a really comprehensive setup and i'm sure that many of our listeners are kind of salivating at what you described in terms of the technology you have available and being able to bring that into predominantly outpatient based practice Uh, that is just really inspiring to hear and one thing i wanted to ask is how many physician partners are in your group currently yeah so currently we have approximately 10. Uh,
1: you know, I would say three to four that are more interventional uh, lining. Uh, and we have a portion that will be providing more diagnostic reports or will be reading remotely part of uh, the the radiology uh, aspect of the of the practice that is mainly uh, in different uh, health uh, uh, jurisdiction, but on-site uh, doing more interventional work we're, we're about for.
0: Very nice. I think the advantages of that a multifaceted approach are pretty obvious for for anyone from the radiology background to understand the typical difficulties which you alluded to in terms of we have the imaging technology but going to the next level and having uh, being able to directly evaluate the patient and perform the procedure for them uh, it's a gap that can be difficult to fill very cool to hear about your success with that and i'm i'm sure amidst your practice something that has been crucial to expand. This is the treatment of anterior column pain. And so I, I'd like to dive right in and talk about vertebrogenic pain. So first of all, we'll, we'll just start with the, the elephant in the room. What the heck is the basi vertebral nerve? Uh, what, what, <laughs> what is it and why ablate it? and And just tell us about it. Yeah. It is definitively a, a nerve and a
1: anatomical structure that gained lots of momentum and lots of interest in the last uh, few years. Uh, I would say even ten years ago, most of the radiologists or interventionalists did not even know about this this structure that now is, in my opinion, essential for any type of pain practice. So the basavirtual nerve is a non-myelinating nerve. So that's that's one of the key points that differentiate this nerve from, you know, let's say uh, the medial branch nerve or or any other peripheral nerve that you may want to ablate that will regrow with time. Uh, This one, once treated with thermal ablation, will not grow back. So this has been very well described with ex vivo uh, studies and also consolidated now with the SMART- clinical trial that we have patients that the trial went up to five years, but no, we now have patients coming out at seven and eight years that have actually virtually no pain after still after treatment. So that's a first really uh, key point of this nerve. This nerve is located uh, within the central portion of the virtual body. So midpoint from, you know, superior plates to inferior plates and about a third ventral to the posterior wall of the virtual body. So if you take a look on a uh, sagittal T2 sequence. Normally, you see within the posterior aspects that at the midpoint of the, the vertebral body, you see a small triangle that starts from the posterior wall. So that is called the basi canal. So this canal will contain a small nerve called the basi nerve, an artery and a vein. And uh, we can treat that nerve by, by ablation. This nerve will arborize toward the end plate and uh, will uh, bring all the pain afferents from the under the end plates, the spear and the inferior plates, back to the central portion uh, of the uh, uh, basal canal where the nerve lies. And then uh, the neural afferents will go back uh, to the brain. So in a nutshell, the basal nerve will be responsible for what we call vertebrogenic pain. Uh, so pain arising from the vertebral body, there always is a question, well, how can you differentiate this pain from discogenic pain? Yes. Uh, it can be very challenging. And in my opinion, it's virtually impossible to differentiate both. And the reason is, continuing with the pain and the neural afferent back to the brain, the vertebral nerve will pass through the sinew nerve. And the sinew nerve is also responsible uh, for the innervation of the disc. So because of that neural connection there, it's very difficult to differentiate both. So to determine if the patient has more vertebrogenic pain, we will rely heavily on MRI. Obviously, first a physical examination, the patient will have uh, low back pain with flexion maneuvers, sitting, often sitting at 15 degrees at stress more, basically the anterior colon. Uh, will the patient have pain when he bent forward with weights? Pain with with vibration in car and in plane. All those, you know, that are typical for anterior column pain, right? So, so that's one of the first things that we'll see. And then after that, if the patient has evidence of end plates, modic type one or type two changes, then you know the patient become uh, amenable for a vertebral ablation procedure, right? So that's a little bit how we can select those patients that's a a little bit what we see. So there's a big component that will be relying on physical examination and also on imaging for that uh, specific uh, uh, treatment.
0: Thank you for that uh, wonderful overview of the pathophysiology and uh, the workup for these patients. And uh, just as a review for uh, our listeners who are maybe a little bit more uh, removed from uh, diagnostic spine or neuroradiology, the, the modic changes, like you mentioned, being the the absolute hallmark of vertebrogenic pain. And to review, the modic type 1 changes are the edematous changes of the end plate. Uh, so, that would be uh, bright on T2-weighted, yep. or obviously stir and dark on T1. And then the modic type 2 changes, fibro-fatty plate changes, which are bright on both T1 and T2 sequences. And I appreciate you mentioning the difficulty of differentiating uh, discogenic and vertebrogenic pain and the sinovertebral nerve uh, specifically, that connection is quite interesting. And I understand it's something that that overlap can actually be taken advantage of. And one of the next things I wanted to talk about is uh, you mentioned some of the things that make the BVN different from other nerves in terms of it's not myelinated, it's intraosseous. And because of the intraosseous location, there's not really a great specific uh, diagnostic block in the same way that we would say, for example, uh, medial branch RFA, uh, where the uh, the injection, the diagnostic block of the medial branch is very analogous to the ablation procedure itself uh due to just the anatomy, it's it's not amenable to that. But the overlap with the sinuvertebral nerve pathway is something that could be kind of taken advantage of uh with the anesthetic discogram. And I'm I'm curious, is is that something that you use in your approach as sort of a diagnostic block? And if so, can you tell in what context you may use it or are there times where you're just convinced that it is vertebrogenic pain? and uh, to proceed ahead with the ablation procedure. Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, this is a crucial procedure also within my practice. So yes, I I
1: do use a lot diagnostic and therapeutic uh, anesthetic discogram quite frequently to confirm that the pain is coming from this uh, specific disc level or from end plates that, that seems to be degenerated or have modic type one or type two. Also, the modic type one, changes will be very frequently painful so that the edematous and plate, so bright on T2, hypo uh, intense on T1, very, very highly related to pain. Uh, I think the last time I checked about 75% of those patients uh, of those type of imaging changes will be correlated with pain versus the type two you have early changes and you have later changes and later changes sometimes may be less painful. So it's kind of worth to really determine if the patient would benefit from a procedure, right? So And, and determine and confirm also that this is really anterior column pain. It's not coming from a different level. It's not coming from facets or any other area that could be also be a confounding factor that, in that aspect. So definitively, diagnostic, and therapeutic, and mainly anesthetic discogram, is essential. Uh, We're doing it on every patient. And if the patient responds well, uh, meaning that the pain will decrease, you know, from 7, 8, 9 on the VAS scale to a 0, 1, 2, 3, at least, you know, 50 to 70% pain decrease. And then you have also the hallmark of uh, vertebrogenic pain, which is, you know, on the MRI, demotic type 1 and type 2. In a skeletally mature patient, patient did not a uh, response
0: to, to conservative care for at least uh, six months, then you can proceed with the ablation. Excellent. Thank you so much for walking through that algorithm. I think it makes a lot of sense in the parallels to the typical diagnostic block and ablation sort of procedure that's common throughout interventional pain. That parallel is, is obvious. And again, the differentiating factor being the modic type one or type two changes. And, uh, we will talk a little bit later about, uh, how to approach patients who respond well to a discogram, but, uh, do not have the vertebrogenic changes. So yes, excellent. So we've walked through of patient selection, your whole process to that. So now it's procedure day. We have the patient tell us about, uh, what's the setting where you're doing the procedure and just walk us through the, the operation itself. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a very standard approach. So similar
1: as, you know, for many of us that that do lots of uh, virtual augmentations. So basically, it is a we're passing through a transpedicular typical approach. So we'll be using a 8 gauge uh, either bevel or diamond tip needle uh, that we introduce via transpedicular approach. The goal is really to bring this uh, introducer needle up to the posterior wall of the virtual body. Normally you want to have an angle of, of attack also that is consistent to ensure that the ablation probe will be able to be exactly in the center of the virtual body. So in comparison to a typical virtual augmentation that, you know, you, you may want to aim for either the superior end plate or inferior end plates, depending where most of the fracture cleft is located. For this one, you really want to be perfectly in the center of the virtual body. So, so that's a little bit of a. Technical consideration that add a little bit to the to the degree of difficulty of the procedure. So, so, so you may want to uh, really proceed a little bit more slowly initially with this transpedicular approach. That is a safe, ineral, avascular approach, very standard. Uh, that you know many of us are, are performing on a regular basis. But you just really want to make sure that you're well positioned within the pedicle. Just like, for instance, if you're doing a spine jack procedure, right? So so basically, if you're putting implants within the virtual body, same thing, you want to make sure that, you know, you have pretty much a parallel approach to the implant. So whenever you deploy the jack, that uh, you can uh, gain as much height as possible uh, with the implants. So same thing. So, but in that case, you want to be parallel to the implant, but also just making sure that the tip of the needle is really in the center portion of the virtual body. So, once the tip of your introducer needle is at the posterior wall of the virtual body, you will introduce a medicinal G-stylet assembly that is surrounded by peak. And this is a curved stylet that will allow you to uh, go closer to the central portion of the vertebral body at the apex of the BVM. Then you push a spatula tip and the spatula tip will create a channel in which you'll be able to push a bipolar ablation probe. And the goal is really try to reach as much as possible to be at least one centimeter ventral to the posterior wall of the virtual body. And this, the reason why we want to have that, we want to have enough distance uh, from any type of neural structure, really uh, the initial bovine studies uh, with this specific ablation probe demonstrated that most of the uh, neural Tissue damage was done in a radius of five millimeters surrounding the tip of the uh, bipolar ablation probe. And then after that, for another five millimeter, you may have some tissue damage. Uh, So you just want to make sure that you have at least a safe radius of one total centimeter of uh, safety uh, where there's no other neural structures that you may be ablating. And then once you're well positioned with the bipolar RF probe, you ablate for 15 minutes at 85 degrees Celsius. So, so quite simple procedure, you need to repeat that actually at both the vertebral body above and under uh, the, uh, the segments that you're treating. Uh, so for one disc or one segment you treat basically two nerves, so the, the nerve above
0: and under. Excellent. The aspect that there's no such thing as a one level of uh, nerve ablation procedure, I think is, is crucial to understand. Yes. Uh, also keeping in mind that uh, the, the access will be uh, unilateral. Uh, for each level, so because as long as you can target it in one way, just like doing a unipedicular or, or otherwise unilateral uh, vertebral augmentation procedure, it, we don't need uh, ever a bipedicular approach to target the nerve, uh, which which helps certainly. So we did talk about how, uh, for example, if the cause of pain were the L four five in plates, then you would be uh, approaching both L4 and L5. Correct. And do you use uh, sort of an uh, alternate, a contralateral approach for that for uh, ergonomic reasons, for example, accessing uh, right side at L4 and, and left on L5? Absolutely, absolutely. Normally, I
1: would I would start on the left side for the, the superior level and inferior level uh, on the right side, yeah. Boats. sometimes you may be able to go on the, on the same side, but it can become a little bit awkward. So, you know, my recommendation, definitively, it's to alternate, basically, if you're
0: studying on the right side, a second level should be on the left. Sure. Is your approach to get uh, each of the level cannula in place, uh, and then try to burn everything at the same time? There's some international listeners and listeners also in the US. So in the US, basically,
1: the only system that is FDA approved is the relievent system. And currently, it is one nerve at a time that, you know, we Proceed with the ablation. Sure. For international uh, listeners, there's some other uh, ablation uh, system that that can be used to have a, you know similar type of outcome. Uh, but currently in the US,
0: uh, yes, it is with the relief app system, and it's one nerve at a time. Excellent. So that would probably be the approach of getting access and going ahead and treating, and while that's burning, moving on to the next level, uh, gaining access. I would imagine that's probably the most efficient way to approach that. Yep. Excellent. And then one thing I wanted to talk about a little bit is obviously the, the L5-S1 in-plate uh, interface is a common cause of uh, this pathology. And so S1 of course has some slightly different considerations from the lumbar vertebral bodies. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So the S1, the, the
1: BVN targets uh, for the S1 level is a little bit different. So rather than being, you know, within the posterior third of the uh, virtual body, you know, you want to be about 50 percent anterior and 40 uh, percent inferior to the superior end plate so slightly different location i would say that in the majority of cases it is not too much of an issue to find a target and put the g-stylet in the right area in some instances uh you know in high riding pelvis uh it can be a little bit more uh, challenging but normally you're, you're still able to find a window there there would be technically. Other ways to do it, but so, so far you know I haven't had any patients that I was not able to access there. Yeah, so so slightly different. It does take a little bit longer, and just just like for vertebral augmentation, also often the the L five virtual body. It's a more aggressive approach, depending on you know the uh, lumbar lordosis. You're using longer uh, access uh, uh, intro, trocar. Uh, so same type of issues that you're you're also uh, seeing uh, at the L5 level and S1. Well, it's it's mainly related to the uh, uh, iliac crest that can sometimes obstruct the uh, the area, but normally you you should be good to find some type of uh,
0: access. Very nice. I I do want to give a shout out to our mutual. Colleagues and and mentors, uh, Dr. Beal and Dr. Wen, they had showed me some cases in which they utilized slightly alternate approaches, which made the specific case, due to anatomic reasons, go much more smoothly, or actually be able to proceed. Where whereas the specific issue may have complicated that, and so uh, for S1, as you said, sometimes with a high riding pelvis, getting that particular access can be quite tough. and And Dr. Beal has described using several times the trans ilium approach. And so this is, uh, just to tell our readers a little bit is basically going from a lateral approach, uh, through the iliac bone and, and targeting the BVN that way. And this is something I think that will make a lot of sense for radiologists who think in terms of axial, trans axial, cross-sectional imaging, it makes a lot of sense to see, okay, it's, it's much like a specific lesion biopsy. To take the straightest path possible. Uh, So that's an alternate method that certainly can be used. Uh, Of course, uh, definitely something only to use if you're uh, comfortable with the imaging landmarks under presumably fluoro. Of course, this procedure could be done under CT, but uh, most commonly done with with a C-arm. So that's one way. And Dr. Wynn has shared a case with me of a patient who had prior instrumentation with pedicle screws and I uh, had physical exam history and imaging findings that were concordant with vertebrogenic pain. And so, of course, getting transpedicular access when uh, the pedicles are already occupied by screws is problematic. And so, uh, using the parapedicular approach uh, that has been uh, described previously. Is uh, an excellent way to do that as well. And so, of course, uh, spine interventionalists are seeing lots of different kinds of patients uh, with different inborn anatomic factors and iatrogenic factors. Uh, so, I did want to throw out those. I thought those were uh, some very interesting considerations. And as radiologists, uh, the interventional radiologists know is not really an option for us. <laughs> we, if, if there is a clinical need, To do something and there's a specific anatomic complication, we tend to find a way to work around that. And so hats off to Dr. Beale and Dr. Nguyen for uh, bringing those to the forefront. Absolutely. We'll actually have a a small presentation. Uh, This is some uh, absolutely shameless self-plugging at the upcoming uh, ASSR, American Society of Spine Radiology Conference, that by the time listeners are hearing this, uh, it will have already happened. Uh, But but we do have uh, a presentation talking about some of these alternate approaches to use the BVNA. But as you said, the wide majority of the time, the standard transpedicular access that's tried and true and familiar to many spine interventionists is going to get the job done. Absolutely. And I think this is
1: the beauty of having a wide spectrum of intervention within a toolbox, right? We can use tricks and tools that you uh, have learned through other type of intervention so through time if you're doing more it becomes much easier and i completely agree with you that's the transiliac approach is a great approach uh it's a straight approach it's an easy approach we know we, we use it for instance for sql insufficiency fracture we use it for you know to put screws to put you know different type of implant uh, of materials so uh and especially when you can Avoid to have too much curvature and just going in a straight pathway. It's always a little bit easier. So this is a, definitely a great uh, approach. Overall, also for your vertebral body, right? I mean, you you can you're completely right. You can use a peripedicular approach. Uh, you can use a modified uh, inferior or superior extrapedicular and plate approach. Uh, so depending where you want to end up, there's various ways to access the vertebral body to avoid implants, to avoid pedicle screws. And, you know, the more you know, the more you do, uh, and the more you're able to accomplish and put the needle exactly where you want to. Um, and it becomes easier through time. So so these are very wise words and completely agree. Uh, shout outs to Dr. Wen and Dr. Beal.
0: Yes, uh, definitely agree with that. Uh, always uh, lots of wisdom coming from them. And so I did want to make sure to, to share that. And um, we'll also try to share that presentation in the show notes uh, once uh, we have it available. Uh, so we, we've talked about the procedure, some in and outs, any other pitfalls, any, any kind of other issues you may have run into doing quite a handful of these at this point? Yeah, so
1: the only other uh, pitfall sometimes is with the bone density, so sclerosis, right? So sometimes when the bone is very hard using, you know, a curved... Introsis approach can be a little bit more tricky. This is still a minority of case and you're most frequently able to drill through it or access where you want to go. But these are the things that, you know, real life experience will will bring you at some point. Yeah, but otherwise it is a fairly uh, straightforward procedure for those of
0: us that are doing lots of uh, augmentation. Very nice. And I suspect this is going to be an outpatient procedure. And uh, what's what's kind of the aftercare a uh, situation, uh, when do you see the patient's back? And are there any sort of post-procedural considerations, peri-procedural care that you go over with the patient expectations and things like that?
1: Yeah, so that's an interesting question because I, I do have lots of international colleagues in different countries and, and continents. And, you know, it's always interesting to see what is being done elsewhere in term of sedation and post-procedure uh, recovery. We're probably, you know, we're not doing those procedures on their GA. We're uh, doing it with fairly light uh, sedation. We're using a gas called uh, nitrox to sedate patients. And we're doing uh, just like a vertebral augmentation. We're doing it mainly with, you know, heavy local anesthetic. It's a very short procedure. I, I do a ton of these procedures. So I would say that the patient will, you know, stay about an hour in recovery after the intervention. And then after that, they are they are good to go. Uh, so it's a very short procedure for most patients. Obviously, you have those patients with comorbidities or older individual that may stay for a longer period of time. But uh, I would say the vast majority after 15-20 minutes, they're ready, uh, ready to leave and they feel great. We do also some, uh, just like after uh, a, um, a virtual augmentation, I do an epidural steroid injection also just provide some pain relief. So so basically, the patient will be covered and you kind of bridge the post-procedural pain that they would normally have after an intervention until they do feel the, the relief. It does take a couple of days before they they will feel better. But at least, you know, bridging basically this with an epidural injection is also uh, a good idea. And we know also that, you know, even for not in all, but in, in a good portion of patients that have uh, modic type 1 or type 2 will have some type of relief with an epidural steroid injection. So really bridging post-procedural pain like this, uh, uh, you know, is part of our practice. Beautiful.
0: Tell us about the degree of pain relief that you're seeing with patients and how are you counseling them beforehand for expectations in terms of clinical success and uh, how, how are you defining that? Yeah. So overall, there's two uh, studies that really
1: evaluated BVN ablation, right? So there's the intracept and the, the SMART trial. So the intracept followed patient for two years, the, the SMART clinical trial up to uh, five years. And so a total of uh, 473 patients are actually treated. And within all those patients, if we just summarize it, I would say 25% of patients have 50% of pain decrease and the other 75% have about uh, an average of 75% of pain decrease uh, and functional improvements. And within this 75%, you have about another 30% that are almost completely pain free. Wow. So that's very notable. So basically, I would say an average, most likely your pain will decrease for about 75%. And uh, if you're within the lucky 30%, you know, your pain may be completely, uh, completely gone. So yeah, so so really good results. Again, we select all patients with what we discussed earlier with an aesthetic discogram. So basically, we're just treating those pain generators that we know will respond well with the, uh, the BBN ablation. So that does help a lot.
0: Very nice. And as you alluded to earlier, there's some interesting, uh, unique aspects of the, the basal vertebral nerve itself, and specifically the non myelated nature. From what we're seeing from the data, it seems to be that uh, for at least the majority of patients, this pain relief is long lasting. Yes, it's not something like a medial branch RF where we'll tell the patient months or perhaps longer of relief, but the pain likely will come back. What's the current data on that? Yeah, so
1: the uh, 250 patients that were enrolled within the SMART clinical trial, at the end of the five years, I believe there was uh, still 100 that were still being followed. And all of them demonstrated sustained improvement uh, in pain, quality of life, and function. So it seems to be a permanent treatment. And even there are some of those patients that are now uh, eight years out and still, uh, it seems to be a permanent treatment. So this was already fairly known with some of the uh, ex vivo studies that, you know, ablated basically BVN, waited to see if there was a neural spritin, if there was any type of neural Uh, healing, which wasn't the case. So it's one of those treatments, again, that I think is essential within a pain practice and and does really change the course of management of patients. Because those patients, you know, uh, we haven't uh, yet dig into that, but it it is within a category of back pain that we call stable uh, either vertebogenic or discogenic back pain, right? So those patients are not candidates for any type of T-lift, P-lift, any type of you know, spinal fusion, spine surgeons should not operate on those patients. There's no evidence of uh, instability often. Unfortunately, in the past, you know, uh, there has been quite a few patients that went to surgery for that because often the patient have no other solution. Right. And they, they, they want to have something done. And I, I understand it from a surgical perspective that, you know, well, you try to help those patients. But now I think we have very strong level one data that demonstrate clearly that, hey, there's a better procedure that takes around uh, half an hour to 45 minutes. And that provides, you know, very reliable pain decrease and improvement in function. And the patient will feel the, the result of that procedure within a couple of hours after after the intervention. So doing a fusion or doing, a you know, even a disc replacement for those patients should no longer be uh, things.
0: Such a crucial perspective with that that you bring up talking about the treatment alternatives. And this is what's so interesting about uh, this pathology and the treatment is that Prior to a few years ago, uh, really uh, lumbar inner body fusion and with posterior instrumentation typically uh, would be one of the few things to, to offer to patients who had failed non-surgical management. And the data on those approaches, as you said, they're, uh, as you might expect, not exactly what I would call encouraging in that a uh, success for uh, surgical treatment for stable discogenic or vertebrogenic back pain. success is uh, about 30% reduction in pain. And you compare that to a potential for 75% or more in 75% of patients, it's sort of a no-brainer. And one thing that I think is is so important about this is that the surgeons who, of course, have the fusion capabilities at their disposal, and of course, those are used mostly for instability or uh, deformity, These are not typically the patients who uh, we are seeing with the vertebrogenic pain. These are typically, uh, a lot of them are are younger patients, most of them without spinal deformity. And as you said, crucially, that uh, they are stable. And so the surgeons, I think one thing that I really do want to emphasize is they definitely have the capability to use this technique too. And I've seen that as well, that a lot of uh, orthopedic spine surgeons and neurosurgeons have started to employ this in their practice. I think that's great. I'm all for that. I'm all for all spine specialists having as wide an armamentarium at their disposal. But it's certainly something that I feel that the experienced spine interventionalist can bring to a table in a setup, whether that's a hospital or a group or a community where this therapy isn't being used yet. It's a great way to get in. As you said, this is a, a very unmet need until really a few years ago. So it's still being propagated and it's a great place for spine interventionalists and definitely interventional radiologists to, to get involved. And that's one thing I wanted to ask about you, any advice for spine interventionalists and particular from a radiology background to incorporate this into their practice? Yeah. I mean, this is just like you, you outlined. This is a procedure
1: that can be very easily uh, implanted into any type of you know outpatient facility, to an ESC, to a hospital, the footprint is minimal. The amount of additional instruments is marginal. Basically, this is all if you're practicing in the U.S., you will be likely using the relevant system, it's all disposable trays. So it's very easy to start with a new practice. And and especially if you're already set up to proceed with virtual augmentation, this is, in my opinion, a no brainer, something that you should be adding to your practice. That's, you know, if you're able to do, you know, fairly basic physical examination of the lumbar region that is virtually asking if the patient have pain with flexion maneuvers, pain with sitting, and you see modic type one or type two change on on MRI, you know, if the patient respond also to the anesthetic discogram, failed a conservative management for for six months, you can you can proceed with uh, with this intervention. So then it's easy to learn and fairly easy also to add within your practice. So yeah, I highly recommend adding this procedure to your skill set and your your belt. I don't see this procedure going anywhere for the next couple of years.
0: Beautiful. It's it's really a rare thing that such a uh, relatively simple procedure is so effective and relatively easy to implement. Like you were saying, it's it's just sort of a no brainer. Uh, specifically, if if you do have experience doing these transpedicular approaches, which anyone who's done a number of vertubral augmentation is already doing. Uh, and so I definitely hope to see increasing uh, radiology usage of this. It's definitely gaining some momentum in the interventional pain community in, in the U.S., uh, which, again, is great. I'm all for the propagation of these techniques and treatments so we can Take care of as many of these patients as possible, and and avoid the the downsides of long term failed conservative slash non surgical management uh, or uh, unnecessary more uh, aggressive approaches. And uh, so I couldn't couldn't agree with you more on that.
1: And often, you know, with those new emerging technologies, one of the limiting factor is that unless if you're part of a clinical trial study, you can't proceed with with this intervention with part of your practice before there's uh, clear CPT codes. And right now, you know, since actually uh, January of last year, there's, you know, the CPT codes are there, 64628 to proceed with, you know, a two-level vertebral uh bvn ablation uh, 64629 uh, that's you know if you're adding uh, another virtual body so basically if you want to treat a uh, three vertebral body for two discs so the codes are there added within the uh, ama a new code for a vertebral low back pain so m54.51 you know everything is there Uh, so it, it's very easy to implement and to get reimbursed
0: also for those interventions. Amazing. Thank you so much for the, the billing tidbits there. And of course they're more than tidbits because the, the devil is in the details. And if we have an amazing procedure and can't get reimbursed for it, then it's, it's sort of dead on arrival. And this has a lot of momentum, uh, a lot of necessity uh, in the community to employ this approach and it's practical at this current point in time. And as you as you mentioned earlier, in different countries, things are going to be uh, a little bit different. But uh, from, from my understanding, it's, it's certainly gaining uh, momentum, obviously, in, in Canada, uh, the US and in certain countries in Europe as well. So that's great. I, hopefully, we'll continue to see this propagate uh, worldwide. Uh, because as we know, uh, vertebrogenic pain knows no boundaries. <laughs> These are common uh, consequence of the biomechanics of, of being alive. So it's just an excellent approach, and that's really all I have as far as base vertebral nerve ablation. Do you have any final thoughts on on that specific topic before we pivot? No, I I, I really do think it's a t- an essential procedure for for a pain practice. And
1: yeah, I invite uh, everyone to you know get trained on it. And if uh, you're not already doing it within do your practice, to start uh, start doing it, you'll uh, save the life of many patients and change change their lives. Just like doing work also on, on the disc, uh, I think the uh, uh, working on vertebogenic pain is essential. Uh, and and that's right now, this procedure has the highest level of evidence, level one evidence uh, for vertebogenic pain. So uh, so it is an essential procedure for any pain practice.
0: And with that excellent segue into uh, the uh, allusion to discogenic pain, I do want to talk about some of the even further bleeding edge techniques that you're working on. And you mentioned earlier disc augmentation. So I want to talk to you about your work with that, with the disc hydrogel. And so you've been working on a clinical trial with this. And so just tell us about what's involved with this. Where does this fall in to the anterior column pain treatment option melange? And uh, where are we right now? Where do we expect to see that go? Yeah, absolutely. So so uh, the way that we set up our
1: practice is also to provide high level and high, high uh, quality uh, clinical trials. And, and we're running quite a few of, of these. And a good portion of the interest right now is on the anterior column because, you know, we all know that uh, most of the low back pain is not festogenic mediated, but rather 60% or even more uh, is mediated by the disc, the virtual body, and currently, until, you know, we just talked about PVN ablation, but uh, there's not other minimally invasive treatments that will reliably treat uh, the uh, region of pain. So to palliate to this, uh, there has been for multiple years, attempt to inject a gel inside the disc, try to rehydrate, basically, uh, those discs and, and provide some support there was a uh, in the year early 2000 a, a hydrogel called uh, gel effects that was tested uh, but they, not, they noted lots of uh, expulsion of the material and and unfortunately this, this uh, did not go too far so that was the first generation of a hydrogel that was that was tested now there's a second generation that is that is uh, uh, available that is made with pva pvp and peg uh, so basically it is a, a gel that you need to Uh, heat prior to inject Uh, so you're heating at uh, 65 degrees celsius Uh, this gel becomes liquid and you can inject it through a 17 gauge uh, needle Um, so uh, you're using you know classic Cambin triangle approach Uh, you're making sure that the tip of the needle is uh, centrally located within the uh, the disc uh, and then you inject uh, uh, that disc and so far, uh, we've treated in my center, 35 patients. Overall, in the world, I think we're, we're past the, the 100 patients. Uh, in North America, we're actually the only recruiting center right now. And uh, the results are not just good, they're phenomenal. So the uh, average pain decrease of patients with, you know, stable discogenic back pain that had one or two level of degeneration decreased their pain score from a 6.8 to a 0.9, which is to be permanent. Wow. You know, we're continuing to follow those patients. But so far, the results at one year seems to be quite sustained with uh, no significant uh, adverse events that are device related that we saw within within my court. So really good results so far. Uh, So very exciting technology. It's interesting to see also where the gel lies. Sometimes, you know, the, the gel lies whenever there's less stress. Uh, within the disc, which is often where you you see either radial or circumferential annular tear, so sometimes the gel will migrate up to the borders of the disc, which initially can seem a little bit concerning, uh, but this is purely part of the gel. It will just provide support when it, where there is no support. And uh follow up uh of patients of, of now two years plus in other center, you know the gel just just lay there and should be good for for actually about uh, forty years. So wow seems to be so far a very promising treatment. We're still uh, gaining data on this treatment, but uh, so far very, very promising and an excellent patient satisfaction. I think uh, 95% plus of patients, you know, would suggest this treatment to, you know, family members or other individual that they know. Lots of the individuals that we treated, you know, were uh, out of work because of you know significant back pain and they went back actually to work so
0: that's incredible and it really reminds me of what we were talking about with vertebrogenic pain in general is that prior to a few years ago this was a problem we didn't really have a good mousetrap for and uh, a lot of different things have been tried in the disc over the years uh, from uh, things that are more uh, nucleolytic to things that are actually trying to augment and but as you said the kind of augmentation approach uh, just, it, it doesn't have anything good available, uh, for it or really anything outside of a clinical trial at, at this moment. So that just sounds like a really exciting frontier as anyone who's read spine MRI for more than a day will know that the issues of disc degeneration and annular tears and, and this whole spectrum is just incredibly common. And debilitating, like you said, some of these patients can't work because of it. And uh, you know what? You, what are you going to do? Fuse them, or or put in an intrafecal pain pump? Those are things that happen. And it's not to throw shade on that. And and certainly, depending on the individual situation and context, sometimes more aggressive things are necessary. But in general, the entire approach that uh, you're working on is it seems to be getting the absolute most ultra minimally invasive way to deal with the given problem. And this sounds like just that for the specific category of discogenic pain. So we definitely look forward to hearing more about that and certainly hope to have you back at some point in the future to give us an update on that and, and what we can hope to see in the future. Oh, absolutely. I, I have no
1: doubts that uh, we'll, we'll hear lots of new developments on the uh, anterior column uh, treatments on the disc uh, injectables. I think that that's one that is seems to be very promising, but there's there'll be probably other also that will maybe be able to help with larger type uh, annular tear uh, also that, uh, you know, normally that we cannot inject gel in, in those, you know, annular gap or larger torn uh, other annulus. So that will probably be becoming also at some point, but lots of new developments within that field. Uh, and I think, uh, at the end of the day, everything that we're doing is for the patient and to provide better outcome and less time in the hospital and, you know, uh, faster recovery. And I think really, you know, everything that is happening currently is spearheading in that direction. So it, it's a very exciting field. And I, I, uh, definitely
0: convinced that within the next
1: couple of years we'll have very good therapies for the anterior colon.
0: Agreed completely. That's just really exciting. And, and speaking of new developments and, and frontiers and in spine interventions. Are there uh, any other particular developments that you're excited about outside of the disc and uh, the disc augmentation and invasive vertebral nerve ablation? Any other particular things on the horizon that you're really excited to see where it goes in the next few years? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, the, the other thing that we
1: didn't talk and, you know, maybe that's gonna be a topic of another, another podcast, but all those patients that have, you know, single or dual level. Uh, radicular symptoms secondary to a herniated disc, you know, what do you do with those patients, right? So, uh, so basically, there's more and more treatments that are minimally invasive, allow to resorb or uh, mechanically extract basically this uh, herniated disc, one of them that we're working currently is with we're performing nucleolysis. So basically, you can inject a a gas, uh, ozone gas that basically will shrink a small portion of the nucleus pulposus uh, right behind the, the herniated fragment, and will resolve the disc protrusion and that's you know i did five or six cases right be, before uh, christmas and followed on those patients they're all doing amazing they have you know either significant decrease in their red symptoms or completely gone and i i have even followed on a firefighter that was completely out of work had a herniated disc, I imaged the patient uh, before the procedure and after the procedure, and it, it looks like there's no neural impingement. The disc is completely, the, the herniated fragment is completely uh, resorbed. Uh, so quite remarkable for a procedure that you can do in such a short amount of time as well.
0: Fantastic. Yeah, I, I have to agree. I, I think that uh, minimally invasive treatments for HNP, as as we call it for short, herniation of the nucleus pulposus is, is, you know, another one of these omnipresent problems that plagues adult patients. And there are a lot of exciting things coming out on there. We'll definitely need to have a specific discussion of nucleolysis techniques. And of course, uh, one of my particular interests is uh, the endoscopic spine surgical approaches, uh, which uh, are obviously gaining a lot of traction among the surgical community. I think that's another area that is absolutely uh, the the frontier, and uh, as we go further into that area, there's going to be no turning back. Which, in, in the best way possible, to making treatments for these debilitating conditions as ultra minimally invasive as possible. Really exciting to see what comes out in the next few years. Absolutely. Well, Olivia, it's been great talking to you. I, I want to thank you so much for your time, sharing all your wisdom and experience with beta vertebral nerve ablation and talking about other anterior column treatments that are coming out. With that being said, I have nothing else. So the floor is yours. If you'd like to promote anything you're working on or, or have any final thoughts before we close. No, I, I, I think we uh, covered very well the, the topic there. I, I think
1: I uh, would like to thank you for the invitation. This is quite a fantastic podcast that, you know, uh, interventionists can go share their their experience and enthusiasm and new techniques and ideas uh, with the community. So, so thank you for uh, hosting uh, this podcast uh, and continue doing the, the great work that you're doing and uh, happy to come back, you know, if there's any other topic of interest.
0: Uh, and, uh, otherwise until next time. No question. We would definitely like to have you back. I think we've outlined multiple potential topics for the future. And so, uh, with that in mind for our listeners, thanks for tuning in and catch you next time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable MSK on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Jacob Fleming, and co-hosts Michael Barraza and Chris Beck. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhirter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness
1: Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Social media and show notes written by Marvie Espiritu. And Ann Deng. Administrative support provided by Junroy Kenneberg.
0: Thanks again, and see you next time.